0: when you are, sir. this yes. is hell
1: Okey-doke.
0: manufacturing descent since 1996 this is hell so how you doing that's good that's good uh, what time is it 10am monday morning thanks on today's this is how we will learn how those two banal 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 questions that we ask every day and likely are completely dishonest in at least our answer to the first question of how we are doing. The whole process can be a revelatory act, exposing the depression many of us suffer from and work hard to be polite and hide. We are, as a society, depressed, apparently, but what is depression? And with it being such a big industry, why is it so hard to define and treat? What we do know is depression is More than the definition of depression Advanced by the influential Diagnostic and statistical manual Of mental disorders which guides How depression is dealt with by mental Health care professionals here in the states Culturally we once held Tightly to a sense of joy For a better future but that is Now gone stolen by There is no alternative thinking Without that alternative With only what we have now in capitalism As our inevitable and Unavoidable future That cannot be changed What that means is As Sid Vicious sang No future A complete loss of future And the feeling that time is stuck Even existing outside of time The lack of hope And intense feelings of unfeeling The mass suicide of our collective imagination Combined with the new impossibility of politics To bring about any real change With capitalism forever Having supremacy over everything That all makes us very, very depressed, seeing only a future that is already lost. So it explains depressive art. Why make it? And how can it be filled with the humor that gives us hope? You know, depressive art like this is hell, and it's depressive realism. That is the depression brought on by being more and more aware of the reality of how much today's world really, truly sucks Our guest this morning argues that unlike the alienation of yesterday Which always implied distance and abyss between man and machine Between animate subjectivity and sterile temporality Alienation today seems characterized by proximity and immersion In other words, the core problem of our alienation is not that we are left alone But that our world now never leaves us alone That being alone without the depressing world around us is Impossible. In a few minutes, we will talk to depression and contemporary culture and literature scholar Mikael Kraus Fransen. He is author of Going Nowhere Slow The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression. Mikael will be speaking to us from Copenhagen, where he is a postdoctoral student at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. Two weeks in a row, University of Copenhagen scholars, who knew? Mikkel is a literary critic at the largest newspaper in Denmark, Politiken, and translated William Burroughs' The Cat Inside and Judith Butler's Frames of War into Danish. You can follow Mikkel on Twitter at Fransen underscore Mikkel. You can find that at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the cell radio or at our website. This is hell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, did I give you the hangover cure?
1: Yeah, yeah, you did. Okay. How how was your weekend, sir? Do you really mean that?
0: Yes. How was Uh, your weekend?
1: Uh, It's fine.
0: Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure.
1: This week's hangover cure is, ooh, this is a good one. Time in the pantograph. Oh, coming back around to the pantograph now, Can you Chuck. believe it?
0: This is actually in the pantograph. In a
1: pantograph article, ask the doctors, cheers to sleep and time when you're hungover. Dr. Eve Glazier and Dr. Elizabeth Coe say, as far as how to cure a hangover, science has gotten that far yet. Uh, the best you can do is manage the symptoms for the eight to 24 hours it takes a hangover to play out. First, skip hair of the dog therapy. More alcohol may give a temporary boost, but soon enough leads to the throes of even more misery. Ain't that the case? Instead, drink plenty of water, eat complex carbs to boost low blood sugar and fend off nausea, use antacids if needed for stomach upset, and get some sleep. Aspirin and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can help with the headache but also irritate the stomach. Never take Tylenol during or right after drinking as it can cause liver damage when mixed with alcohol. No one who has ever had a hangover wants to hear this, but the only certain cure is time. So that makes this week's hangover cure, time. Time, sure.
0: And I've got time now on the weekends to cure my hangover if I had that problem You are listening to God's favorite radio show Prove me wrong This is hell If you are a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash how You heard me last Friday talk about my problem with weekends I didn't have weekends for 23 years And now that I suddenly do with our new daily schedule I don't know what to do during the weekend. I have no clue. I completely forgot what you are supposed to do. I have a vague memory of watching cartoons when I had weekends before doing this show, but it's all a haze of very foggy memories. So I asked subscribers on Patreon to tell me what I should do on weekends. Sam sent an email to chuck at and suggested that I... Volunteer for Bernie on the weekend I'm assuming that's Bernie Sanders, not Bernie Madoff Sam writes blah 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 Electoralism sucks Yes, just do it though Because it's good Yeah, Sam, I'm not going to do that But volunteering is a good idea Although I volunteered away my weekends For the past 23 years by doing this show And one of our main reasons For doing daily shows now Is to reclaim my weekends So you're absolutely correct, Sam It would be a good thing to do but I've essentially been volunteering for that cause, everything that Bernie Sanders stands for, since 1996. So, pass. And You're right, Sam. I should do it because it's good. Which reminds me of a really weird thing I heard at the mall two weekends ago. I started last week by wondering here on this show about the destructive business models like uh, Amazon, which have been developed and successful despite what we know about climate change and carbon emissions facing or fueling global destruction. While we were at the mall, we got something to eat. After we got our appetizer, and again after we had our meal, and then after we finished, Our 20-something Waitron kept asking us, Is your food well? Is your food well? Sadly, my food was not well. It was dead. Just lying there on my plate, lifeless, waiting to be eaten. Please, everyone, I'm begging you, do not allow this grammatical butchery to take hold. Do not tolerate your server asking if your food is well, because it's not. If it was well, it would still be grazing in the farmlands or be rooted in the ground. Also on the show recently, tourism keeps coming up, and not in a good way. Way back in July, we talked to sociologist and award-winning writer William I. Robinson, author of Into the Tempest, essays on the new global capitalism. William writes Under the new global social apartheid, tourism is the fastest growing economic activity and even the mainstay of many third world economies. This does not mean that more people are actually enjoying the fruits of leisure and international travel. It means that 20% of humanity has more and more disposable income, simultaneous to the con- contraction of consumption by the remaining 80%. This 80% is forced to provide all sorts of ever more frivolous services to and to orient its productive activity toward. Meeting the needs And satisfying the sumptuous desires Of that 20% Then a couple months later In September We spoke to sociocultural anthropologist And sustainability scholar Amelia Moore Who wrote uh, the book Destination Anthropocene Science and Tourism in the Bahamas Amelia explained Only a few weeks after Hurricane Dorian Had made Landfall in the Bahamas and hit it hard That the Bahamian government was prioritizing tourism over people Revealing the importance of tourism for the local economy And how much the islands had become entirely dependent upon tourism As their only means to make a living A voracious tourism that demanded so much food It destroyed all of the fishing in the area And the fishing villages that once were a mainstay Of Bahamian life Then last week During our conversation With sociologist Bram Boucher And Robert Fletcher About their new book The Conservation Revolution Radical Ideas For Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene Tourism came up again Which makes sense As Robert uh, Robert's earlier work Is titled Romancing the Wild Cultural dimensions of ecotourism Brahm and Robert agreed with William's assessment, as did Amelia, that Tourism is an industry built on the Inequality of the relationship between the server And the served, which William Says breeds a new global social Apartheid. Brahm even suggested That instead of the kind of vacationing we do Now, where we go somewhere for a few days Or a week, or On some kind of tour or cruise Where you jump from one place to another Constantly seeking famous sites, Rather than that kind of holiday holiday, Maybe we should stay a while Like a month Really get to know the people Maybe do some research on what's happening in the area before visiting Subscribe to their local papers And see what the community is like Where the people who will be serving you Actually live 24-7, 365 So one of the things I wanted to do On my newly freed weekends was Get away from it all. In fact this year I was supposed to, I was going to travel overseas for the first time in my life and what was certain to be my single biggest contribution to climate change throughout my time so far here on earth. We were scheduling a trip to Scotland for two weeks which my 80 year old mother-in-law really wanted to do before she turns 90 and can no longer travel but for a variety of reasons those plans have been scuttled and to be honest I'm kind of relieved Sure, I'd love to see the Macintosh home at Glasgow University Not to see that Jag Charles Rennie Macintosh's work But the work of the far superior artist, his wife, Margaret uh, MacDonald Macintosh Whose work is often ignored by tourism guides Yes, tourism can can also be just as patriarchal and sexist as everyday life now we're not going to Scotland, or the Isle of Skye, or the Neolithic settlement Scarabray, or the Macintosh House, so I will miss the opportunity of being angry about Margaret's work and not getting as much praise as that of her hack husband Charles. Now that I finally have time freed from the radio show to travel at the moment when I can finally, maybe, see just a little bit of the world tourism has been ruined for me by this stupid show, and I never had a chance to enjoy travel. Once people find out that I have not traveled, they always ask, why? When I explain that it's because I am, I was, and I always have been poor, whoever I am speaking with usually says something like, well, to really understand the world, to really get to know it, you've got to travel, before walking away from a conversation that abruptly ends. So, do poor people not understand the world because they don't travel? Do wealthier people have a better grasp of life on Earth because with their wealth they can travel far distances? Those who are not so well-off don't go to far-off places. Instead, they likely visit family for a free place to stay and visit parts not so far away. So do poor people have a better understanding of the local area than the rich people Because the rich see flyover country as all of the parts of the country where poor people reside Now that I finally get the chance and the time to travel The guests on our show, the topics they discuss, the questions I asked, And the way that they answered have ruined the one thing I always told all my friends I would do if I hit the lotto And that is travel, see the world What could be wrong with that? Apparently there's a lot wrong with tourism, which sucks, because I really wanted to travel. That's why for me, This Is Hell. Coming up, we all know everything's a political act, so how is our current epidemic of depression political? We'll find out in just a few moments. We'll also have Rotten History and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio, so clearly and sadly, Gnome's gone insane This is hell Depression is far more than the textbooks and diagnostic manuals say it is Depression is an intense feeling of unfeeling Where you live in a present Where the future is already lost Yet we can find hope and humor in depression And within all of that, depression has its own politics Here to help guide us through what we do and don't know About our current depressive state from Copenhagen, depression and contemporary culture and literature scholar, Mikkel Kraus Fransen is author of Going Nowhere Slow The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression. Welcome to our show, Mikkel. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. You can follow Mikkel on Twitter at Fronson underscore Mikkel. We have a direct link to that at our website, thisishell.com. I just want to tell you, this is a fascinating book. I learned a lot from this book, and I really just want to tell you before we start talking, I truly appreciate the work that you've done here. So thank you very much. Thank you. You start by explaining how two questions form the basis of your work. The first very simple question is the one that we innocently ask and answer every day. How are you? How's it going? The question how we are doing is at at times uh, banal and brutal, as predictable as it is profound. What happens, what is the impact of depression when we as a culture, as a society, when we are trained to not be able to answer a question like, How are you doing honestly? And we seem to be trained by custom and culture to lie, to just have this as a throwaway question. What does it say about our culture when a question like how are you doing is something that has absolutely no value and is just something that is disposable?
2: Well, um, I think... It has a lot to say, honestly, and I think that's, that that uh, innocent question um, says a lot about our fear of of answering it truthfully. It says a lot in that people seem to be seem to be afraid of answering that in in a truthful manner. I mean, people are ashamed of actually saying, well, you know. I've had a shitty day. The weather in Copenhagen is awful. When I went up to to pick up my kids from school, one of them was behaving like a lunatic. I'm exhausted. It's, you know, it's the first day after the winter holiday and, you know, etc. etc. But instead, we are supposed to put up this happy face and just say, well, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Um, so lurking behind that seemingly innocent question is this whole imperative or ideology even of happiness. Um, At least that's my argument.
0: So, but we are all supposedly today, you know, a lot of popular literature today says that we are all in an epidemic of depression. So if we are all supposedly in this epidemic of depression, have you seen any signs that we are becoming better at actually answering the question honestly of how we are doing. Are we, if we're all suffering from depression, have we found the common bound by bond by saying and telling people exactly how we are doing?
2: Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Um, because, I mean, this is the basic paradox or one of the main paradoxes of our time, I would say. The paradox being that on, on the one hand, um, we are constantly told, also in Denmark, that we are living in one of the happiest countries in the world, um, and I, I guess it's the same in Finland and Sweden and, and most of Scandinavia even. That we are very happy people, and also we have scholars telling us that <clears throat> that history is just is this you know constant progress where. People are getting wealthier and wealthier, and they are getting happier and happier. This is the one side of of the whole thing. And then, of course, the other side and the darker side is that if you look at the rates of depression and other pathologies, they are just skyrocketing. They are just going through the roof. So people are getting more and more depressed while at the same time supposedly being more and more happy. It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And then again, there is, of course, a a deep connection between these two, uh, between happiness and unhappiness or between happiness and depression, I would say.
0: According to the 2019 Happiness Report, Finland is the happiest country in the world, Denmark is now second, and the U.S. has dropped from 18th to 19th happiest country in the world. I'm really glad that you brought this up because critics often here in the U.S., they use the U.S. ranking as evidence to counter those who argue the United States is the greatest country in the world by arguing the lower ranking reveals that the U.S. clearly falls short of being the best, that the system in the United States is not the best, that other countries are better off than the U.S.A. To you, what explains the seeming disconnect that's taken place from a country's happiness to a nation's, I don't, I don't want to say greatness, power, if you will. What's the why? If the United States is the most dominant global power of the late twentieth century, early early twenty first century, why aren't we the happiest people?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. If I knew the answer, I would be very rich, I guess. Um, but. Can I just tell you before I get into answering that question that uh, we just had this uh, new commercial from Kokyo, you, you know, the the brand that makes, um, what's that called, uh, yeah, chocolate milk? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And their new tagline is, um, sorry? No, I... Yeah, so their new tagline is, make Denmark happy again, of course, <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, that is one of the <laughs> one of the big aims, apparently, uh, to make Denmark the happiest country again, to make Denmark great again by making it happy. And of course, it's it's, it's a silly commercial. But again, I mean, we have this in Coca Cola saying choose happiness. We have it in Carlsberg commercials, the Danish beer brand that welcomes visitors to Copenhagen Airport to the happiest country in the world. Um, I guess they haven't looked at the recent report from the World Happiness um, Foundation. So there are all these paradoxes characterizing our time. And of course, it is no measure of how great a country is um, that it is at the top of the happiness reports.
0: Is our unwillingness to say how we are doing, is that unwillingness a kind of depression denialism, a defense mechanism? Are we all in a kind of climate change denialism, but when it comes to depression?
2: Um, I would say no, actually, because... There is no denialism in the sense that we are, at least in Denmark and in most of the Western world, we are talking a lot about the mental health crisis. We are talking a lot about depression. We are talking a lot about suicides, um, teens uh, that are uh, killing themselves, basically. Um, But then again, we are talking about it within a very specific and I would add problematic framework where we tend to say, yes, more and more people are depressed, and that is a problem, but the way to deal with that problem or the way to solve that problem is you know through biochemical means by big pharma and by individual therapy. So we have, of course, an immense attention to the psychopathology of depression. We have diagnostic manuals that are all too willing uh, to offer general practitioners and, and, and the whole field of psychiatry, the tools to diagnose more and more people with depression and, of course, other mental illnesses. But they do it in this way where they say context doesn't matter, causes don't matter, all that matters is symptoms. So they look at symptoms only, and it's the same Logic that characterizes the more public discourse on depression. Uh, I read this uh, um, opinion piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago where this um, pro- professor in psychiatry, I don't remember his name, was talking about the epidemic of depression and the suicide epidemic among teens. And he asked a lot of reasonable questions, but his answer was that that the solution was not less medicine or more collective solution it was basically more medicine more individual solutions um so there's not really a denialism going on as much as this very narrow-minded way of looking at the problem of depression uh, we have a a what i call a personalization of depression, which in my mind should be answered by a more politicization of depression.
0: Are we depressed because we will not focus on the causes and context of depression, only the symptoms? Because we've been having conversations on the show lately of uh, whatever the issue is, not uh, looking at the root causes of the problem. And because we're not looking at those root causes, we are not seeing that capitalism is the root cause of many of those problems, that we're trying to not Blame capitalism—that we're trying to obfuscate any view of capitalism as a cause for our problems. So, what? So, is are we depressed because we refuse to look at the root causes of our problems?
2: Mm, that has something to do with it, certainly. Um, I very much agree that capitalism is the main culprit here. I mean, capitalism is a system of suffering and it it destroys people's lives. And it is a machine of extraction, extraction of value, extraction of resources, mental, natural resources, but it's also a machine of exhaustion. It exhausts people, it it burns people out. Uh, It is just the way it functions. Um, And before we start addressing that problem and that particular connection between capitalism or capi- or capitalist realism, as the late Mark Fisher calls it, and then the psychopathology of depression, then we won't get very far in supposedly treating, uh, in scare quotes, the phenomenon. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question yeah, at no,
0: all? No, it does. You, you also okay. point, you point out that um, what do we talk about when we talk about depression? You ask how do we yeah. define it and capture its specificity? How do we deal with this phenomenon without treating it merely as a conglomerate of other previously known mental illnesses? Yet there is something more to depression, something specific that makes it discrete and distinguishable from other related phenomenon. This is why the DSM, this is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which lists a set of symptoms such as tiredness, and insomnia suicidal impulses etc is not a comprehensive let alone satisfactory though perhaps understandable f- uh, from a practical clinical point of view uh, so mm. so does Does the DSM definition, can you be depressed without having the symptoms that are laid out in the DSM? Is there depression that is outside of that diagnosis? Because I I know that this manual is incredibly important in the field, and so Mm. I'm sure that... Its influence over the field then trickles down to us and the public and into the, the layman public. And so maybe their misunderstanding of depression leads to our misunderstanding of depression. So can you be depressed outside of the symptoms of the DSM's depression?
2: I think you can. Uh, that said, I mean, some of the symptoms that they list are obviously real, and 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 truthful. When you are depressed, you are tired, <laughs> you can't sleep. So that part of the uh, uh, diagnosis is true, uh, but they don't deal with the causes. They don't deal with the context, um, and that goes back uh, at least to the third edition. Uh, I don't mean to be too technical here, but the third edition of the diagnostic manual, DSM, uh, that came out in 1980, that was, you know, the big landslide within the field of psychiatry, and where we had this shift from trying to understand mental illnesses and uh, mental disorders within a historical societal uh, context, um, and then only dealing with illnesses in in terms of symptoms that was a very important event Um, at first an event within psychiatry but then as you just said it trickles down in a way or it spreads um, into the more public or or popular way of you know um, thinking about and speaking about depression. Uh, But of course there are things that are not included within DSM, which is a bit striking since the latest edition is, I don't know, a thousand pages. And, you know, the the number of illnesses have just exploded from the third edition to the fourth edition to the fifth edition. So there are basically, I mean, you can find any, any kind of illness in there. Um, the latest being grief that is now also included in the um, pathological system. Um, where it is now pathological, in a way, to grieve too much or for too long. Um, but there are, I mean, I deal a lot with the temporal aspects of depression, the way that you experience time. And there's been a lot of research done within uh, phenomenology um, that, is, that has influenced my thinking quite a bit. But that kind of looking at depression from a more philosophical point of view is not in- included in the diagnostic manual. And then of course, we have all the political issues that are certainly not included at all.
0: And you write about this idea of the potential for pathologizing the normal. Are we finally then, are are we coming to our senses and realizing how depressing the world around us is? Or has the world changed to make us more depressed? Or are we misdiagnosing what is common as somehow depressing?
2: Mm, that's a tricky question, to be honest, and I'm not just saying that, <laughs> um, because there is certainly a case of overdiagnosing. Um, but and and then some psychiatrists would argue that well, the reason that more and more people are depressed is not because of the society in which we live or the work-life balance that we may or may not enjoy very much but the reason that more and more people are depressed is because we have a better system for you know screening people and thus you know um, we are able to see that people are depressed which they were also before but now we are able to see it uh, professionally Um, that is of course not something that i would agree with at all Um, so on 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 the one hand we do have uh, over uh of what one might call normal uh, feelings um, such as sadness or grief for instance. On the other hand it is clear to me that we have seen from, 19, from the beginning of the 1970s um, onwards uh, where depression sort of replaced anxiety as the most dominant disorder within the uh, mental illnesses, where there is something very specific uh, about our time and about our society that makes people uh, suffer more and thus also uh, becoming more and more depressed. And that has something to do with the economy, that we are faced with the economic crisis, uh, the levels of debt, private and public debt, the ways that people are actually, you know, people who are, Indebted are much more likely to suffer from distress, depression, anxiety, because they worry about their future. They worry about making men, ends meet. Uh, that is, uh, I mean, well documented within um, research. Um, so there are different, you know, ways of answering your question.
0: You write about time, as you were mentioning, and how people who are depressed view time. You write how time slows and time stops, and people who are depressed experience time out of time and a loss of a sense of the future. Is depression then just—is it more than just being bored of your routine that has become a rut? And is the loss of future— more than just a loss of future due to apocalyptic climate change Or some kind of thought like that that the depressed person has So when you talk about time and you talk about the future Is depression just an outcome of the routine of capitalism? And is the loss of future just the loss of the future due to climate change?
2: Mm, it varies, again um, I, I think a lot of the younger uh I mean, talking about or talking to the young generation, um, to which I doesn't include myself, um, it strikes me that they are sort of, also going back to your previous question, they are actually coming to realize that they live in a shitty world. They live in a world which literally doesn't really have a future at all due to climate change. And they are experiencing but also expressing Uh, high levels of anxiety, depressed, grief, depression, about the world they live in, the laws of nature, uh, the lack of future uh, of uh, futurity. So that certainly plays a big part in their life, I would say. Um, We have all these articles about also young people killing themselves or trying to kill themselves because they can't really see any 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 um, future, really. I mean, they are just stuck in a present and in a world which doesn't make sense to them. And not only that, it causes enormous amounts of pain just to live in that world. Um, so there's that. And then, of course, we also... I mean, there are people who are clinically depressed who have an apocalyptic uh, mindset, I mean, that is also a common symptom of depression. And I mean, if you have been around people who are depressed, they can be, I mean, to to put it bluntly, annoying to be around because they are self-absorbed, but they are also, you know, negative, totally negative and, you know, tend to see things in an apocalyptic light, really. Um, Sorry, I'm rambling a bit here, but... uh it's good. Yeah, it's just, good. it's, good. Be it's good. It's good. You're doing okay. a great job. Uh, we're <laughs> speaking with Mikkel
0: Kraus Fransen. He is author of "Going Nowhere Slow: The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression." You write about the impossibility of politics and how that can lead to depression. Are we depressed because of, for instance, back in 2003, despite having the largest mass mobilization in world history, the invasion of Iraq could not be stopped? Are we depressed because we accepted? The idea of Margaret Thatcher Saying that there is no alternative Is that why we're depressed Because politics no longer seem to work?
2: I think that's a plausible way of putting it Of course there are no direct causal links here I mean it is not the case that Okay Margaret Thatcher says this in 1982 And then boom, 40 years later, people you know, are getting more and more depressed. Um, but of course, that world that she not only envisioned, uh, but also brought about, and which uh, Ronald Reagan uh, helped bringing about in the US, that neoliberal world, that world of that uh, policy of austerity and that way of increasing inequality in society, which, by the way, doesn't exist, according to Thatcher. That certainly didn't help uh, on the mental well-being of the general population, I would say. But it did instead was, you know, it made people suffer more. It made people lose jobs, but also security in in terms of their job situation. And it is well-known and well-established that, you know, if you are in debt, but also if you have an insecure job situation, then, I mean, the risk of becoming depressed depressed is that much greater than if you were just living in another society. So, I would also say that what depression makes manifest is, is what I call the contemporary subject's alienation in its most extreme and pathological form, and what I mean by that is that depression... I view depression as a symptom of a world which has basically, where the future has no future, to put it like that, Um, where there are no alternatives, as as Thatcher also put it. This is what Mark Fisher, the British cultural critic who also suffered from depression and whose writing on the topic has been incredibly important to me. This is what he called capitalist realism. The sense that not only is the capitalist and neoliberal system the only viable economic and political order, it also seems impossible to even imagine a coherent alternative to it. And that kind of world without alternatives that kind of you know frozen world or the world where the future is frozen i think that drives a lot of the um that drives uh, depression to be sure
0: just it's it's almost as if when we're given a lack of choices we become depressed because we don't seem we like we have that Freedom of choice. You write, one question that does not concern Mark Fisher is where this leaves the hypothesis of depressive realism, which states that depressed persons are not depressed because they have a distorted or delusional view of reality, but because they have a more accurate perception of reality than people who are not depressed, if... If I am depressed, that's the kind of depression I hear so often from our listeners. It's what this is how our show means is the realization and recognition of the depressive realism around us. As we learn, as we gain in our understanding of what is happening around us, do we get more depressed? Is the ultimate transparency, knowing exactly the way the world works as it operates today, is that just incredibly depressing? Are we depressed simply because we're becoming more aware of what's happening in the world?
2: Well, I think there are two ways of uh, answering that question. The first one is that what I'm skeptical of is the kind of romanticization of depression that can be found sometimes in writings on and about depression, where you sort of get this rosy version of the depressed artist or the depressed genius or the depressed visionary who is able to see the world as it really is. I I think there's absolutely nothing romantic about being depressed. It is, I mean, hell on earth if you are clinically depressed, and there's really nothing to be, you know, applauded, (laughs) or you know, there's no romanticism involved. Um, That's that's um, the first thing um, I would say. The second is, um, and I'm kind of I kind of lost the thread here dealing with depression. Oh yeah. The second thing that I would want to say is that I don't think, thinking about the relation between capitalism or the political economy and the psychopathologies of the present, it is not a matter of epistemology. Um, That's maybe a bit philosophical, uh, but what I mean by that is that I don't think you get depressed because you suddenly see the world as it is, or you see the world uh, in all its horrors, I think you get depressed because you are indebted, or because you have a shitty job, or because you are just you know working three jobs, or because you know you can see the world's planetary situation is just totally bad. But that's not just a matter of perception or epistemology. That's also a matter of materialism and money and financial issues and your bank account, and your waking hours, and your life, and your family, and all that, and your race, and your gender. So I would be a bit skeptical of only seeing this as a matter of, okay, now I see the world as it really is, and then I get depressed.
0: You mentioned three pertinent uh, pertinent. Paradoxes that uh, When it comes to depressive Works you write that there's the paradoxical Existence of depressive art as such The paradoxical comedy of Depressive art and the paradoxical hope Sometimes made manifest In depressive art Why is depressive art Funny and hopeful why aren't they Simply sad and hopeless Why would you want to make depressive Art that was funny and hopeful
2: Yeah I mean that was one of, one of the things that I found when looking into the contemporary culture and literature uh, that, in one way or other, deals with depression, is that a lot of the works that I read or saw or experienced, they were funny. They had this dark humor. Uh, And as um, Samuel Beckett once wrote, and I think I quote him, right? I mean, nothing is funnier than unhappiness. That's why Kafka is funny. That's why Thomas Bernhardt is funny. That's why Samuel Beckett himself is so funny. It's because it's so dark. So there is this paradoxical comedy to depressive art or depressive aesthetics. Um, It's also to be found in um, the works of David Foster Wallace and... Michel Ulbeck, both of whom I deal with in the book, um, but I'm not really, I mean, <laughs> after I've written the book, I'm, I've, get, I've become less and less thrilled about yeah, both Wallace and Ullbeck. Um, but I mean, they are obviously still, I mean, they have their moments where they are generally funny because they are generally depressed and dark authors.
0: Your work also uh, focuses on the art by uh, the expressions by Claire Fontaine and Lars von Trier as well. I just want to make sure everybody understands that we're discussing uh, the bigger picture aspects of Mikkel's book and not discussing the four different pieces of work that uh, he focuses on, because I wasn't too sure if our listening audience will have been familiar with those works, so I thought we'd talk about this more in generality. But you write, the problem is not, when you look at any of these works, the problem is not one of anime, nor of the pulverization of social bonds. This is, at most... An, Epiphenomenal problem Rather these works tell us that the core Of the problem of alienation Is proximity rather than distance Mm. The total integration of work and life Rather than a brutal separation between the two A warm, effective economy Rather than a cold and abstract one So is the problem Mm. not one of Loneliness, as the British government has Concluded appointing a minister of loneliness But of not being alone enough?
2: Well, I mean I found this insight in the book, The Noonday Demon, uh, which is a documentary kind of work by Andrew Solomon, uh, who wrote a book on his own depression. Uh, And there he writes that we are not depressed because we are too far away from the things that we want, but because we're too close to them. And when when I've studied depression, it popped up again and again this theme of being actually too close to the things that we really want or to be too immersed in in, in, in one's work or job for instance and it's so hard to separate the two uh, but of course that doesn't mean that we are not lonely um, but it's just a interesting way and and maybe also speculative way of thinking about the current problem. Because, of course, I mean, the go-to logic would be, okay, we are totally alienated from each other. We are not, you know, we are sitting... With our own screens in front of our iPhones and computers and whatnot, just do being on social media, and we're not able to connect anymore. But I would be a bit, you know, again hesitant to give that much credit or explanatory power to technology and to social media. Uh, the logic being, oh, it's all it's all social media's fault. Um, so. I think depression is also very much an illness of choice in a way.
0: Um, well, that's what I was just about to ask you. Do we choose to be depressed by allowing that proximity and immersion into the market and allowing it into our homes and even our pockets at all times? Or is it something that's uh, outside of our, our power to allow or disallow and has just been imposed on us by the market?
2: Well, I mean, it's not either or, I would say. Uh, but I would also add that I mean, the general vibe that you can pick up from self-help coaches or lifestyle gurus or psychologists is that it is basically only a matter of your choices. So that if you are happy, it is a matter of your choices alone. And that also means, of course, that if you are unhappy, that's also a matter of your own personal choices. It is a matter of your lifestyle. It is a matter of your mindset. And of course the same logic applies to obesity or poverty the logic being that if people are poor it is their own fault they could have made other choices if people are not thin enough it's their own fault they could have made other choices they could have eaten more healthy food etc and the same logic is definitely totally ingrained in the popular way of looking at depression where it's a matter of your own choices and I think it's very important to get, a, to get away from that uh, kind of violent logic, in a way, uh, which could also be called something like the pers- a personal responsibility crusade, where the subject or the depressed person is made infinitely responsible for its own suffering. I would say, no, we should rather try to collectivize and politicize our suffering. We need to realize that the suffering is not our fault alone. We are not alone in our suffering. A lot of people, I mean three hundred people worldwide, suffer from depression. It is a common political, societal, historical problem. Um, that doesn't mean, on the other hand, that I mean that I or you that the choices we made, that they don't play a role at all. Of course they do. Of course we have some responsibility, but there is this tendency to place all the responsibility on the subject, on the individual. And I think we need to get away from that as soon as possible.
0: We recently had a guest on who said that the concerns about inequality that we're hearing the presidential candidates talk about here in the U.S. are all cover for neoliberalism. They say inequality because they do not want to talk about poverty. The word inequality is cover for neoliberal, cover for uh, poverty. Our diagnoses of depression Cover for neoliberalism are, Are the increased Amount of diagnoses that we're Seeing for depression and just calling them Depression is this just cover For neoliberalism
2: I mean Perhaps we should start By distinguishing between depression And depression here I mean So that we leave aside The people who are clinically depressed Who are you know genetically disposed To depression who have a long family history of being depressed, who are psychotic when they are depressed, and hospitalised and all that. But but when talking about the the, the depression that the majority of us uh, suffer from from time to time, I think I mean what we call depression, we might as well just call social suffering.
0: I completely agree. I don't know why there's so much uh, separation between that. But as we've been talking about so much on our show recently, how was, uh, often we find a variety of things compartmentalized when they shouldn't be compartmentalized, when they should be looked at as one big picture instead of something that was uh, there in separate little you know, stovepipe areas. Uh, we've been speaking with Mikkel Kraus Fronson. He is author of Going Nowhere Slow, The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression. You can follow Mikkel on Twitter at Fronson underscore Mikkel. We've got one last question for you, and our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. The question you might hate to ask, or we might be, we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write the new or contemporary feature of the no future stimmung or mood that writers such as Frederick Jameson addressed quite a long time ago, emphatically encapsulated by Jameson's famous quip that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than an alternative to capitalism, is that today there? this is no longer the shocking realization of a cultural vanguard such as the punk movement who was saying it in the past. The punks saw no future because they could not see a future without capitalism. Are we all depressed by the idea that it is, this is as good as it gets, that it does not and will not get any better? Are we all, Mikel, are we all now punks? Has punk philosophy of no future been normalized and accepted by everyone?
2: I think it has. I mean, to a certain extent, the answer is yes. I mean, what was a shocking realization to them is now just common knowledge, especially to the younger generation. They all they know all too well that, I mean, they have no future at all.
0: I asked this question actually online and uh, I was asked all the people who are following me, you know, do you think that we're all punks now? And somebody replied that it is very easy to imagine an alternative to capitalism that that's not a problem whatsoever and it shouldn't be a problem for anybody is it easy to imagine an alternative to capitalism
2: i mean i think i i, I know what the listener is getting at or what's getting at i mean I mean, reading a lot of science fiction stuff lately, it seems fairly easy to imagine different worlds, different arrangements, alternative economic political systems. Um, But then again, I mean, do we really believe that it's realistic? Uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, I I was at this uh, climate demonstration just to end on a more personal anecdotal note um, a year ago or something with my two twin girls and a lot of friends and a lot of people in Copenhagen and we were there protesting you know climate change and all that but while we were standing there I had the feeling that no one in the whole crowd really believed that what they were doing had any impact. Um, I think maybe that's also a generational generational question, um, or issue, or difference even. So that when some of the younger generations, they go on school strikes, they protest, it seems that they are actually believing that they can make another world a different world. And of course it is, I mean, it is there that our hope lies. That's a bit cheesy way to end, but yeah. (laughs) yeah. Thank
0: thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fantastic work. Again, Mikhail Kraus fansson is author of Going Nowhere Slow, The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression. This really is a fantastic book. And thank you so much for being on our show this week.
2: Thanks for having me, Chuck.
0: Thanks a lot. Take care. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing This is hell, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history On February 18, 1943, 77 years ago This Tuesday, two students at the University of Munich The siblings Hans and Sophie Stoll were arrested by the Gestapo For advocating resistance to Germany's Nazi regime This is pretty much at the height of German power, 16 months prior to D-Day, five months ahead of the Allies landing in Italy. I mean, they just suffered a stunning loss at the Battle of Stalingrad, but pretty much right near the top of the height of the peak of Nazi power, five months ahead of the Allies landing in Italy, 16 months ahead of D-Day. Hans and Sophie were founding members of the White Rose, a mostly student group that passed pamphlets and other materials hand to hand throughout southern Germany, which is a real good way to out yourself as an anti-fascist. You got to wonder what kind of looks they got near the height of Nazi power when they were handing out anti-fascist leaflets to Germans. In Nazi Germany Oh my god, I wish they had GoPro back then Several other White Rose activists Were arrested the same day as Hans and Sophie And more were caught in the days thereafter Hans and Sophie were among those Found guilty of treason and executed By The very German Execution device The guillotine, come on Germany, the guillotine You mean the master race Couldn't come up with their own Form of public execution You have to appropriate France's And the more you learn about the Nazis The more you know about the Nazis And all you really need to know is They were a bunch of dicks who stole ideas from everybody Because they were too filled with hate To think of any ideas on their own Others from White Rose went to prison Until they were liberated by the Nazis At the end of World War II Before they were apprehended Hans and Sophie Stoll hoped that the Nazis' recent defeat At Stalingrad would turn German public sentiment against the war But on the very day of their event Again, of their arrest Again, 77... Years ago this Tuesday Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels made a live radio speech In which he cited the Stalingrad debacle To argue for an escalation Into what he called total war That's how effed up the Nazis were When they faced their first major defeat Instead of reconsidering war They doubled down like belligerent bullies Who don't know anything but violence Because that is what fascists are It was Goebbels' most famous speech And he made it at the Berlin Sportpalast a major venue which in the years after nazi germany's defeat would go on to host concerts by let's see the beach boys jimi hendrix frank zappa and pink floyd before being demolished not pink floyd but the structure in 1973. oh my god can you imagine tripping at any of those shows in a nazi uh, stadium oh my god that would have been awful well m Knight mcgaldi Quite a twist from Ronaldo, who writes Rotten History, except for the stupid jokes. That's all on me. And I'm pretty certain that is the first Rotten History segment we've done, where a story about Nazis killing Antifa members in the 1940s Germany ended by mentioning the Beach Boys, Hendrix, Zappa, and the Floyd. But I could be wrong. I mean, I have no idea where the Wilsons, Jimmy, Zappa, or any of the Mothers of Invention are. Roger Waters were during the 40s, do you? Because I'd be entertained by getting high and watching an investigation into their possible Nazi backgrounds on the History Channel. In Rotten History, February 23rd, 1898, 122 years ago, this coming Sunday, the French novelist and journalist Emile Zola was found guilty of libel for publishing an open letter accusing French President Felix Faure. F-A-U-R-E I was going to say Favre, but I think that's Brett Favre Of anti-Semitism in allowing Alfred Dreyfus A Jewish officer in the French General Staff To be wrongly convicted and imprisoned for acting as a German spy Because Zola kicked freaking ass If you've liked our coverage of mining and fossil fuel exploitation And consumption leading to the era of climate change Within which we currently live Read Germinal by Zola I don't remember much of it from college, but the images of the mining stuck with me forever and they were definitely hellish. The 4,000 word letter by Zola accusing the French government and defending Dreyfus had appeared a month earlier on the front page of a liberal Paris newspaper under the huge headline Jacuzze, meaning I accuse, which was the best headline ever written until over 100 years later, somebody had the headline. Man trapped in refrigerator eats own foot In it, Zola argued that Dreyfus was innocent And that another man was the real spy Zola accused the French army of using fake evidence To set Dreyfus up for a life sentence In solitary confinement And he charged President For Favre Whichever it is, with being in on the cover-up Zola was one of the most popular writers in France at the time And his open letter caused a sensation with liberal writers, artists, and intellectuals backing him up While conservatives, anti-Semites, and the Catholic Church called for Zola's head Because when there's anti-Semitism to be had, Catholics and conservatives are always first in line And they take cuts later on, get back in line for seconds, like it's a regular buffet of hatred Zola's libel conviction Carried a sentence of one year in prison And a fine of 3,000 francs It forced him to skip the country in a hurry With barely enough time to pack his bags He took refuge in London And remained there for almost a year Until the 4-5 government Fell and he was able to Return to France As for Captain Dreyfus The public scandal resulting from Zola's letter Led to his receiving a pardon after five years In prison, which is awesome, but still Five years in prison because the French military and lots of its people were anti-Semites. Yeesh. A few years later, Dreyfus would be completely exonerated. Whew. Finally, the story ends well. Wait, but that would come only after Zola was killed at the age of 62 by an accident that spawned many to believe in conspiracy theories. That accident is home, a blocked chimney, and he dies from carbon monoxide poisoning. You think that might be a conspiracy? You think? So French anti-Semites executed someone for defending a Jewish person who was unjustly accused of a crime, and apparently the irony was lost on all of them. That's Rotten History and This Is Hell. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays Live, This Is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time here on This Is Hell.
1: Yeah, real excited about this. McMansion Hell's Kate Wagner will be back on the show to talk about her new baffler piece, Staring at Hell. The Aesthetics of Architecture in a Ruined World. Extremely on brand. (laughs) I know, I'm
0: really looking forward to this. Uh, And uh, if you are living in the Chicago era and you want to see McMansion Hell, all you have to do is just drive around the northwest side neighborhood of Sauganash. It's it's everywhere. And uh, it's fun to laugh at millionaires' homes while they're sitting in their cars on their completely paved front lawn where they display their cars on a regular basis. It's disturbing. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex, Jerry, I want to thank Mikel, Alex, and Ronaldo for working on the show today, for being on the show. Truly your revolting radio, This Is Hell. Talk to you tomorrow.
1: Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.